It is with greatest pride and deepest pleasure we invite you to be our guest and listen to the latest episode of Doing Disney on the 2017 remake Beauty and the Beast. Theme song guy. On this podcast, we let it go. Because Hakuna Matata and the bare necessities will always be our guide to infinity and beyond. All it takes is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. We know that life is better under the sea. Because on this podcast, we do Disney. Hi there, I'm your hostess with the mostest, Kelly Meehan, and welcome to Doing Disney. Today, we're celebrating Beauty and the Beast 2017, and I've brought a very special guest with me. I have Will Cohen. Will, thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's 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 always great spending you know like spending time with you. You're always such a joy to be around, and really, a I don't get to talk about Disney that much, despite the fact that I have a four year old, and b I don't feel like this film gets talked about as much as it should be. So I'm really glad that we we get to talk about this today. Start at the beginning. Beauty and the Beast, the 2017 live-action remake directed by Bill Condon, starring Emma Watson as Belle and Dan Stevens as the Beast. Being a remake, it mostly follows the plot of its 1991 predecessor. A young and narcissistic prince in his castle is bewitched by an enchantress to live his life as a beast unless he can be loved by someone for who he truly is. Belle lives in a rural village with her father Maurice, who is in the wrong place at the wrong time when he takes a rose from the Beast's castle while on his travels. He is put in the castle dungeon where Belle finds him and takes his place. Over the course of the film, the two develop feelings for one another until the small village, led by war hero Gaston, who is also vying for Belle's affection, storms the castle to kill the Beast. Mortally wounded, Belle and Beast declare their love for one another, which breaks the spell on the castle and its inhabitants, and they live happily ever after. Tale as old as time. Well, this is a rare occasion. It's not often that I'm the one that approaches people with a movie that I would like to talk about. So I've we've done um, The Little Mermaid 2023 this year, and then uh, I've watched The Cinderella 2015 recently as well. So I'm on a bit of a live-action princess kick, and I'm like, I really want to revisit this one and sort of see where it stacks up. And I'm like... Who do I know that loves musicals and might be interested in this one? So I'm very happy you said yes. Thank you very much. Well, you know, thank you for definitely having me in mind. Um, especially since I, you know, you're right. I absolutely do love musicals, and I, even more so, I even love this movie. Uh, I feel like this movie is the before before the Little Mermaid 2023 came out. Obviously, I kind of feel like this was the benchmark. If you're going to make a live action uh a live action movie that managed to keep most of the music then this was kind of like the benchmark this is what you need to do it's like you need to aim for here and you know unfortunately most other most other films like either just slightly missed the mark or just completely bottomed out entirely uh, until, of course, Little Mermaid 2023, which I feel now that is that has to be the new benchmark. But um, we're not talking about that one. We're talking about this one. But yeah, this is, you know, wh- whether it be the cast, whether it be uh, the way that it looks, the cinematography, just there's so many great things to talk about that no one is talking about. And that's really frustrating. Well, it's not often that... Uh, some of my segment titles tend to match up with what we're, we're, we're watching. So, Taylor's Oldest Time, how did you first come to the film? Did you watch it in theatres or is it when you came to after? Oh, not only did I watch this in theatres, uh, this actually came out, uh, I 
think like either a few days before or a few days after my birthday in 2017. And so uh, I got a whole slew of people uh, to come, you know, to come out to the theater. And not only that, but it's like I made all of them shell up for like the premium experience. Because it's like, if I'm going to see this movie, I want to be able to see it. I want to be able to hear it. I wanted that experience. And so that was just my, you know, that, that was, that was how I did this. Um, I think I have seen it like two or three times since then, I believe, but yeah, it's, it's a great film. (laughs) This is, um, March, March birthdays, end of March birthdays, the great people, great Aries people right now on the call. Uh, I was very similar. Uh, it came out my birthday week, 2017. Alan and I went on my birthday night, packed theatre. Do you remember at the time, because this is what our third, fourth, we've had, what, Maleficent, Cinderella, Jungle Book, fourth, fourth sort of live action release. So we hadn't heard a lot of the discourse because, as, as you sort of said, nowadays the benchmarks really changed um, and sometimes we get that question of why they're still being made. But we can tell from The Little Mermaid, like, it's still box office success. I know it might not be in the US, but globally, like, I remember going to pack theatre of Little Mermaid. I think these, well, I think it's Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King are some of the biggest box office successes the 2019 and the the 2017 so do you remember having any um preconceived notions or opinions going into the theater because i was just psyched because beauty and the beast 91 has always been my highest standard wearing my bell jumper now like that's my girl so i was extremely keen for this how did you feel so for me uh i approached it in a very similar way that i approach uh i usually approach most uh disney or you know just like for lack of a better term, like fandom, you know, category films. Uh, I go in knowing I'm going to see it and not looking at the reviews at all. So I had no idea what this was going in. And so I saw it and it's like, I obviously I wound up loving it. And even after I hear the discord, say after I hear, I heard the arguments, I still revisit it. And I'm like, you know, I still love this movie. No. I've I've gone on a journey with this movie as well. And I'm the same way. I'm if I know there's something I'm gonna watch, I try to go in with an open mind, or as I sort of say, I go in with the best intentions because I'm choosing to spend two hours of my life with this movie and all I want to do is be able to enjoy it. So that's the way that I go into all all the live action films, and sometimes it meets it, sometimes it doesn't. This one we walked out of, and probably because it's my birthday, I'm like, yep, that was good. Alan, not so much. The second time I watched it, I was like, nope, I was feeling all the negative arguments and like not going to do it again. It's not holding up. The third time, for whatever reason, must have just been on a sick day. And I'm like, no, I'm going to rewatch that. Loved it. I have just rollercoasted. And so that's another reason why when we've been, when I've been going through all the princess movies, I'm like, I, I just need my definite opinion on Beauty and the Beast 2017. And I'm ending up with, it's fine. <laughs> that's what I'm ending I like a lot of it and it's fine. And, and I can like be just be okay with that within myself so that that's sort of where i'm ending well absolutely and the fact that you know like as much as i love this film i do understand some of the criticisms and i have some criticisms of my own yes. you know still that i'm sure we will get into you know later on but you know after, at the end of the day beauty and the beast was like you know being um 
Oh, God. Yeah, I just remembered how old I was when I saw it in the theaters. I'm old. Uh, <laughs> I think I was like... Uh, I was like nine when I, you know, when it, uh, the first one came out. So yeah, uh, this, but I saw it like so many times in the theater. So this yeah. was this like when a lot of, uh, a lot of people of my generation, when they think about their first Disney experiences, their first two Disney experiences were the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. So why, you know, so obviously, it's very fitting that those are the two best live action Disney films. That you know, because obviously Disney they wanted to make good live action films for these, and they succeeded. I think that cracks onto the point of what about um, why the live action remakes, some people feel necessary or not. I think that's a really hard task to take on no matter what, because you either need to really lead into this nostalgia of bringing back those feelings of uh, the original movies, but still be making enough small changes to make it an experience of itself. And I think that's why um, I haven't watched The Lion King 2019. At the end, at this point, yeah, the we're an audio podcast, but you should see Will's face, like the grimace and the laugh and everything, because it's too faithful. So people were like, why? But then if you started changing things, people would be like, don't mess with this. So I think it's a really hard undertaking. It's my favourite part because you'll see. Let's get into some of the favourite scenes of this one, though. Will, what are some of the scenes that stand out to you? Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the big scenes that stand, uh, stood out to me uh, was the was the great you know the 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 moments leading up to them singing Gaston the, you know the song Gaston the you you said it yourself like small you know small little intricate changes here and there and that's what you got uh, I felt like the lead up was better you know than the uh, than the original movie was because in the original movie. You know, you didn't, you know, you didn't need to have a big buildup. You just let it, you know, you just let it fly. Whereas with this, it had, you had a little bit more time to breathe. It was like almost twice the runtime of the original. And so they, it definitely simmered a lot more. And that simmering, it's like, you actually got to see these characters have layers, which you didn't get in the 90, you know, in the uh, 91 version. And so that's that's kind of crucial especially if you're going to do live action because you know with animation you know especially like back then they didn't really care about like showing like like real emotion on the characters faces but when it's live action you need to sell that and it was sold so well but um if we're going to go with my favorite scene which is pivotal which is something that the original sorely lacked uh the scene uh the scene where uh after uh the beast is you know injured after like he rescues her from the wolves uh and you know she's been you know she's bandaging him up and then they start quoting shakespeare to each other and then uh and then he goes you know, she goes, well, Romeo and Juliet's my favorite. It's like, of course you love romance. Just, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, God, there's so many other better things to read. It's like, it actually shows that they banter with each other. And it's like, they actually are starting to like each other. They are starting to get comfortable with each other and be smartasses with each other. And 
really, Bell not using her brain and linking, you know, and battling sarcasm? Come on. How is that not in the original? You want to you want to sell Bell as the smart print, you know, Disney princess? Battle wits. Have her battle wits, which she did not do, and it's painful. Whereas in this, yeah, you have Emma Watson, who obviously, you know, is known for being a brainiac typecasting, maybe. Who cares? It's still the re obviously the reason why you did it is because you knew that she could pull off smart and you actually got to see it and that just that just makes that such a pivotal moment for that film i love the way you've described it because that's my favorite scene as well and i have a lot of similar points the biggest positive to the movie is the production the sets the costume the overall design that makes you feel like you're being um you're being invited to watch a fairy tale you're being sucked into a magical fairy tale world and I agree, the change in the runtime, I, I clocked it, is the difference from an hour 25 to two hours 10. So you need to be able to, pad's not the right word, but you have those opportunities for development. And I have the exact same thing, the library scene, bonding over literature, making jokes with each other, making jokes about romance books, and then having the time to call that back. Because you're right, in the animated film, I've talked about it before with the princess movies, they're animated, they're animated storybooks. So you can just do a, a short, cute scene and, yes, we're in love because that's the way a storybook goes. But you're right. When you're, change, when you're translating that to a live-action setting, you need real-life people to be able to sell those emotions and to sell. We need more build-up because we're closer being able to relate it to ourselves. So we need to be able to see that growth and that development. You can't just um, shortchange it with something there. Even though I like something there in the original and I think it works really well, uh, you need the, the lead up to it. And as you said, the banter, I love the banter, the way what's like, are we, are we making jokes now? And Dan Stevens throwing it back. That was my favorite uh, favorite scene as well, which, when he's like, oh, you like, of course you would like Romeo and Juliet because I don't really like Romeo and Juliet. So when he said that in the theater, I was living for that. Of course, that's the Shakespeare that you picked. <laughs> uh, what other scenes stand out to you in the film, Will? the the other scene that really stood out that hit me like a brick to the face is the scene when uh they use the book to go back to uh they go back to i think it was paris uh post uh post plague and she gets to find out like the fate of her mother the great thing about you know the great thing about uh a story like beauty and the beast uh in the you know in the original it never it was the first it was the first time it um I think this is, I think one of the reasons why it hammers home uh, as a lot of people's favorites is that it never talks down to its audience it never talks down to its young audience it never fears about going too dark and they took it a step further with this with that scene. Because you actually get to, you you think you think going into this, it's going to be just this, it's going to be more whimsy. But then you get to find out the reality of the time period. You actually got, and this is another thing that they kind of failed to do in the uh, the animated film. But of course, you know, with it only being eighty five minutes, what are you, you know, like? Are they really going to talk about the history of France? Probably not. But 
it's just the fact that you got to see the plague ridden France. You got to see this dark, dusty attic where you know she slept as a baby. You got to, you know you got to feel the heartache. It's such a short scene, but it it conveys more emotion there than anything that that goddamn Lion King remake did because <laughs> it's like just th- this is this is the that it seems like that that make me put this on the pen you know on the pedestal I put it on because once again it it doesn't talk down to its young audience and it makes the older audience realize you know realize what they could have had with the original and i think that's it's it's giving it's you know the film you know this film as a whole gave you what you wanted and then gave you more and the reason why it works is because with the, you know the more that it gave you actually works it's not that it just added stuff it's just that they added stuff that worked and this scene worked like gangbusters I'm really having such a good time in this conversation already because this is a scene to me that felt superfluous, that felt like padding, that felt unnecessary. But I just, I really enjoy the way you've described it. I really enjoy uh, that French history moment. For me, it lies more when we're watching it in the emotion of um, deepening that father-daughter connection for Maurice and Belle, which is another highlight Mm. of the film, I feel. I really love those little added moments of um, her asking him to bring back a rose or just her helping him do the inventing stuff. This scene, I felt, was maybe that one step too much, but I still appreciate it for, as you're saying, like the historical element of it all. When I saw those plague masks, I'm like, oh, wow, this is like, this is where we're going right now. (laughs) Okay, that's, but again, giving more weight, weight to Maurice as a character, because when we start to talk about Kevin Klein, I'm just going to be like gushing the whole time because I just love it so much. Uh, One scene that stood out to me is actually the opening. I love the difference in the uh, opening narration being from the Enchantress now, not being from um, David Ogden Steers. I love it. And just I think it's a strong opening. And as we've sort of agreed that the production's so well done, opening on that full French Rococo fantasy of a ball and seeing the prince in his uh, selfishness and in his full narcissistic almost black swan-esque fantasy like (laughs) i really enjoy it and being able to see um the opera like oh audrey mcdonald like when we get to her uh, (laughs) but being able to actually see her singing these dances and just the extravaganza of it all i just thought that's a strong different opening to the film that still plays into what the original was trying to say with the king and we just with the prince sorry and we just see i think it's like the stained glass or just like small scenes of it all so they really um expanded on that opening scene to set the narrative uh will anything you think about this opening um you you definitely hit it on the head but i definitely want to add a couple things uh as to why i love that opening because i absolutely do love it too but the reason why I love it is for a, for lack of a better form, uh, lack of a better word, a technical reason. Because going into it, 
I like I read like fan questions. And they had a lot of questions. It's like, why, why didn't they do this? Why didn't you know, like why 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 aren't the you know why you know why didn't the villagers do this and so on and so forth? Well that opening shut all of those questions down in three minutes. It is such an impressive thing that like one like it's impressive that one thing can change so much and just negate all plot and like almost like the biggest plot holes just negate them right off the bat just plug them with that giant manhole cover right down there and it's like okay we'll proceed it's just such a baller move which i don't know like i don't know how you how else to describe it it's weird to call you know something out of view in the beast 2017 as baller but come on that was a baller move you know, just being, able to, being, being able to seal that many plot holes that quickly and allow the film to proceed it's like i looked at that i was just in awe of that and i was like wow okay just that is that is a strength to the, a lot of the live action remakes that especially the ones that i've watched this year is um filling those little gaps filling those little plot holes i think in cinderella she talks about how like the magic makes you unrecognizable or in mm. little mermaid 2023 i i love the change that it's ariel at the end you know not eric because that was a, a lot of people's biggest gripe that you still need a princess to come save it and i think it's still in um keeping the integrity of the plot and the story, just just updating it a little for modern times. And, and I think they, they straddle that line really well. Listen well, all of you. Uh, Will, what is your favourite quote of the film? Because a little behind the scenes before we started, Will's like, do you mind if we like string those two together? Because i got some through lines. So please, what is the best quote of the film? So the best quote of the film uh, was, uh, was in the trailer, spoiler alert, but... Again, it hammered like it does so much in such a such a brief fleeting line that I can't help but love it. Uh, it's when they are finally in the library together. He says, "This is this is your library," and she's just in awe. She's never seen this many books in her entire life, which any bibliophile would be going just wipe my face now, just drool, drool, drool. But then she gives the line, you've, you've read all of these books? And then he goes, oh, no, no, not all of them. Some of them are, some of them are in Greek. <laughs> and so first of all, it's a great line by itself. Great joke, great line. But here's why it's pivotal. You actually see the beast have a personality. Which is, look, you can you can talk about Robbie Benson's performance all day long, as much as you want to, from the '91 version. This guy was just a seven foot tall wet blanket, the entire. So giving him a sense of humor, not only to himself, but he's actually willing to. See, you see, Bell is an equal 
which is why he's opening himself up and letting him see that sense of humor. So, again, this doesn't feel like this doesn't feel like Stockholm syndrome. This doesn't feel like, you know, the Dickens snap of the fingers. Everything's cool again. No, you actually get to see a progression, and it's like, wow. I like I I like a beast with a personality. It's kind of weird. You're going to have a beast walking around and he's just complete anger? No. They actually let him have layers. And it's like, I didn't realize I needed that so bad until I saw that line. <laughs> the the library scene from the 91 has got to be like one of the pivotal scenes of my life. Like, I love it so much. Uh Two library scenes, actually. The first one, the first one's like the bookkeeper scene where like Belle's on the ladder. Like I have that as a Christmas ornament. It always sits very high on my tree. Or just Belle hanging off the ladder with her arms outstretched. I love it. We built a huge bookcase because of this scene because like it was so transformative. It just doesn't have a ladder. One day, one day we'll put a ladder in. But I think this is just like this is the ultimate gift you could give someone. It's just this huge library. I love it. Like it's setting relationship goals since ninety one. Unrealistic ones. Um, but well, I think I really love what you're saying with giving the beast personality. It's being able to see the prince. It's being able to see the prince behind the beast. And I do like the comparison to Robbie Benson because it's a it's a completely different performance. Dan Stevens to Robbie Benson is a really different performance because Robbie Benson's so vocal and so uh, gruff. And then you, you're really seeing um, swings, like you're seeing either a really angry beast or you're seeing a really soft beast. Dan Stevens lives right in the middle for the whole of it. He doesn't, I never see him be super angry. I never see him being super rough, but that's okay because I like that you're seeing a more human side to the beast and why Belle would fall in love with him in, in a more, as we sort of said, realistic approach than the animated, very storybook way. So I, I love this scene. I think it's a great um, homage to the original while still being able to be itself. And as we sort of said, you're getting that banter between the two. So I think this is a, a great quote. And, and as you sort of pointing out, like a very necessary quote to these characters and to seeing that development that in this longer runtime you must have. One of my favourite quotes, <laughs> I, I think it's just the humour. I think a lot of the humour works in the film for the most part. So I love uh, Gaston and I think it's always been a question of mine from the 91. And, again, I don't mean it, it's, it can't just all come down to runtime, but you do need to condense things down. In 91, I've just never sort of understood what Gaston sees in Belle besides her just being super pretty. Um. I really like that we see a little bit more that it's, I think in this one, it's Gaston wants what he can't have. So I like seeing uh, this quote where uh, Gaston talks to LeFou and it's the one that always plays hard to get that the sweetest prey. That's what makes Belle so appealing. She hasn't made of a fool of herself just to gain my favour. What would you call that? LeFou just goes, dignity. And Gaston replies, it's outrageously attractive, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know why it just takes me out. But again, that's more of that development there and, and, and a bit of that humour. And I think um, Luke Evans and Josh Gad have a really good chemistry in this film, which we'll get to a bit later. But that was the first time I saw Gaston with, a, like, this, this is that's this version of Gaston. And, and I just appreciated that. Are there any other quotes that really took your fancy from the film? Because I have one more. Uh, let's, go ahead, let's go ahead and have... Uh... Let's go ahead and hear yours. My second one also comes from the start of the film. I'm someone, I'm going to say it on like every show I'm on, like I like the start of the films. The start of the films tend to be a lot of my favourite parts. 
it's um during the bell scene which oof, we will get to we'll get to but um from the original one of my all-time favorite scenes is that bookkeeper bell exchange so they do change it slightly in this one here uh, with Pierre Robert and uh, he says, if it, is, if it isn't the only bookworm in town, so where did you run off to this week? And it's still keeping that bell um, escaping into books, which is just one of the greatest morals and um, messages of the film is, is having a love for books and literature and being able to escape your circumstances. I just I always love that. So Bell replies, oh, two cities in northern Italy. I didn't want to come back. Have you got any other places to go? Pere Rivera replies, I'm afraid not, but you may reread any of the old ones that you'd like. And this Bell quote, this is why I love this, um, this Emma Watson performance. This is the part that sells me. She just says, your library makes our small corner of the world feel big. And I think that really sums up the power of literature and the power of stories and, and what freedom that gives people. So uh, this is just one that even though they change a lot and every time I watch it, I'm like a bit of a, bit of a knee-jerk reaction because I'm ready. I, I can do that whole bookkeeper bell exchange, but it's my favourite bar of places. Like I, I love that moment so but This is this cements to me the Emma Watson performance of Belle. What are your thoughts on this scene? Uh, I absolutely love that scene too. And, you know, we, we've been talking about little changes and not only, you know, not only does that show like the power of literature, it, it shows the depth of her imagination as well, which we don't really, we don't really get into with the 91 version too much, but you can, you know, again, little scenes that mean so much. Yeah. You know, all like, like if you just like take this scene out and just examine it, you know everything you need to know about Belle in just those few minutes. And when you can do that, when you can just boil everything down and just make it, you know, boil it down without like flat out just telling, like you know, per, you know, like displaying the personality traits there on the screen. It's like it's it makes the film more intelligent. Like not only does not only does it not only is it just great writing, but it's just it honestly just makes this film more intelligent, which is one of the reasons why like when people talk about now uh talk ill of this movie, they uh, I just don't think that they're getting it necessarily. Because again, like if you, you know, like the fact that they have like these just verbal lines that just go over most people's heads. But if you're paying attention, like then you're, you're understanding things on a whole new level. Mm. And that's a great scene. That's a great example of that. You ain't never had a friend like me. Let's stay on Belle as we get yes. into some of our favorite characters. How do you find Emma Watson and the portrayal of Belle for this film? I'm of two minds of this. So on the surface, I hate to call it stunt casting, but it was 100% stunt casting. Sure. Sure. You know, it's like, okay, who's, you know, who's a somewhat age appropriate, you know, who's a somewhat age appropriate person who can play bookish really well. Oh, let's just steal the one that, you know, that, you know, her franchise has done for you know has been done for five years. Let's just bring her in. Mm. Which 
I was I was fine with it. And let's be honest, she could have done with a few more singing lessons. Oh, it's rough. Like, it's rough, unfortunately. I think it's I think it's great casting, and it's just unfortunate that the vocals couldn't match, especially when um, I think Paige O'Hara has one of the most melodically beautiful voices ever. So it's already yeah. a really hard hard bar that's been set. Uh, yeah, the. We don't need to super get into it because it is one of the, one of the it's been one of the most well known criticisms of the film is just how auto tuned uh, a lot of it is. But for you know, for is where she lacked in singing talent, mm -hmm. she brought everything else. Exactly, that's how I think. She you know she she took you know she took the core. You could tell you could tell that Emma Watson like had to have like. At least a like one notebook full of notes of how she wanted to play this, and she played it so well. She she didn't just play it like the way that it was, you know, that Bell was in the original in the ninety one version. She had little, you know, she like it seemed to me that she added a little, you know, a few extra quirks in there, like. Emma Watson's one of those actresses that can tell, you know, can give you a paragraph of words in a smirk. And she, she brought that energy to Belle. And again, I never knew how much I needed that until I saw the movie. So yeah, fine. Auto-tuned Belle, whatever. Let's, you're right. Move on from that. You know, there's other. You know, it's it's a known it's a known gripe. Get over it. But for everyone who's complaining about the singing, are failing to see her great performance here. Absolutely, um, I like the little changes that they made to it. Uh, with, as you sort of said, you want to you want to make Belle um, a bookwormy smart princess i like that they made her be part of the inventions why wouldn't it be that if she is being raised by maurice who's this wacky adventure to see more than just like handing him the wrench like to actually pick the wrench and and we actually find out a bit more character development about maurice is that he was an artist first so inventing might be something that's like come about later so why not together make that like their home life and then the other thing that i really love is her teaching the little girl to read because then we get more background about why Belle is maybe quirky in her village because unfortunately this is a village with women that maybe aren't afforded an education, that aren't afforded the ability to read, that that's seen as something different. And then, again, not only on top of that, she invents the uh, cleaning device. You know, she's someone who's able to see a problem and you can see the, the gears working in her head about how to fix it. And I really like that. I like that this is someone who... Um, we're seeing actions. We're not just hearing the words. We're seeing her actions uh, show uh, her true personality. So I, I, I like that bit a lot. Right. And the scene, uh, going back to the scene with the girl, that's another, uh, that's another pivotal moment. Again, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it tells you everything. You know, it tells you so many things you need to know if you're paying attention to it in such a short scene. Not only do you, you know, not only do you get to find out about Belle, you get to see her empathy. You get to see her not hoarding knowledge. Like I kind of felt like the the ninety one version of Belle just kind of hoarded knowledge and just used it to you know use it as weapons against people, which 
<sighs> such a bitchy move. Like, I don't know how else to put it. What's such a bitchy move? It's a, okay. Okay. I, I, I don't know how else to put it. But at least, but Belle here is paying it forward. She's, she wants, she wants to, she wants to not only obtain knowledge, but she wants to pass it along. She wants mm-hmm. to, you know, like, it's not that she is, it's not just that she's inventing something as well. She's making, you know, she sees what, you know, she sees the struggle. Yes, she's observant. Yes. And she, and she's, she wants people to work smarter, not harder. So she's trying to be helpful. But then not only that, it's not just that she's doing these things. It's the reactions of the villagers. That's also yes. pivotal. It shows the, it kind of shows like the period itself. Mm-hmm. You really feel the period in this film and no more so than during this entire sequence when she's being like essentially chased off for like teaching, like, you know, teaching a little girl how to read. It's like, how dare you teach my girl to learn stuff? You know, how dare you make some weird demon contraption that could possibly make our lives better? How dare you? And so it's like, and her reactions to it, like the, you, you actually feel the heartbreak. There's such, there's such, there's such, there's such flits, but if you're not, if you're not paying attention, like again, so many things like this, if you blink twice, you miss it. But if you're paying attention, and this is a film you absolutely need to pay attention to, to get the full value of it. Uh, you just, you just feel for Belle. Yeah. You know, you, you see what she's trying to do. She's being helped. You know, she's trying to, be helpful so when she gets that that second verse in uh uh in the you know in that song you know i want adventure in the great white somewhere yes like you actually understand where she's coming from you act it's not just her it's not just a gut reaction to what had just happened it's a build up and for the love of God, we need build up for things like this to actually feel. And it's like I, it's it's about time that the filmmakers actually understood that, and these guys clearly did. And that's just such a brilliant time. I think Emma Watson sells so well as the scene. I have it in my laundry. Like it's one of my favorite moments. Where um, in the '91, when Bell uh, rebuffs. Gaston's engage, uh, proposal and I love the like uh, outrage almost that she's feeling like Madame Gaston can't you just see it his little wife oh like I love Emma Watson that and then as you sort of said running off to I want to be to the great right somewhere and you're right that's the core of Belle that is uh yeah that's just keeping integrity of the character but putting it in a new way uh, we've talked about him briefly already. How do we find Dan Stevens as the Beast? I I hinted at it. Uh, I hinted at it before, but this is this is definitely one of those. This, not only not only is that a great performance, no one, no one gives this performance any credit, and it is painful. Like Dan, like Dan Stevens is one of those actors that I don't think just 
he, I, I kind of feel he has kind of run into a little bit of bad luck where he's in these movies that people either tend to just overly criticize or just completely forget. Because I believe it was the same year he also did um, uh, the movie Inventing Christmas, where he played Charles Dickens, uh, creating a Christmas carol. And that was, you know, his performance in that and what, you know, the energy he brought there is very similar to the energy he brought to uh, to the prince and uh, subsequently to the beast. Where it's just like this uh, inner, you know, you get to see the inner monster come out. And it's not that he's angry. He's hurt. He's frustrated he like when when this happened to him he was a you know, he was young he was young and immature and he didn't have an outlet so now he you know so you get to you not only get to see that you get to see like knee-jerk reaction knee-jerk reaction until he's called out and then you actually get to see the wheels turning it's like Oh, you mean there's another way I can go about this without yelling? And so it's like, again, layers. They added so many layers to so to all the characters that were just so painfully one note in the 91 version. But as, as you put it earlier, it was an animated storybook, so they didn't think about those things. But it was also the 90s. I don't think anyone really cared too much about children's programming back then either where they could kind of sort of you know gloss over things or not think about things and on a broader spectrum so like when they did this they clearly wanted to think about things they wanted to you know they they clearly ask okay here's what you know here's what he's doing but why it's the but why that's so pivotal and it it actually engages the audience more but and also dan stevens is a singer evermore we're going to talk evermore later on yeah, yeah. heart yeah. stopping good yeah. lord that man has a voice <laughs> uh i like the points we were bringing up earlier uh about uh comparing to robbie benson because uh, again dan stevens isn't trying to put on a voice he's not trying to imitate what has come before him he's putting his own take on it it's more princely very upper crust he speaks very articulate so he speaks about his education he speaks about his background and then you also get um a bit of background on him from uh mrs potts about feeling so sorry about um being raised by his father when his mother passed and about being raised in a cruel manner so i think you're right i think you're seeing um the loneliness come out and i think you're seeing him living through the consequences of his actions uh, so, and I think that's that's a bit of a different take to the '91. It's it's <clears throat> excuse me. It's similar enough in the sense that um, it's seeing the beast cooped up in his castle, but the the how, the why, and the interaction with the um, other inhabitants of the castle, I think, is is uh, is interesting and different here. Let's have a quick rundown of the people we see in the castle. Uh, I'm going to lump them all together because they're they're a great trio. Let's talk uh, briefly about Lumiere, Cogsworth, and Mrs. Potts. What did we sort of like about the characters in this film? 
I want to see Ewan McGregor play more flamboyant Frenchmen. I like I like going going into it, I knew that, you know, when when they announced that Ewan McGregor was going to be Lumiere, I started thinking about it. I'm like, I don't think that they could have found anyone better, to be honest, because A, that man can sing but that man can that man can sell you know that man can sell like a bowl of ketchup to a woman with white gloves when he acts like he is just he is just magnificent and like he is just you know he is just like you're throwing chunks of scenery at you and so when you <laughs> when when you when you saw the movie in 3d you're, you're you're getting hit by those chunks but every scene he's in he's just stealing and running away with it um whereas and he's the perfect foil to cogsworth ian mckellen as cogsworth like honestly this like on the opposite end of the spectrum that was the one i was worried about but when I saw the performance, it's like, honestly, these two play off each other like Laura and Hardy, and it is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> he is like, you know, like Ian Ian McKellen playing, you know, playing the straight man to Ewan McGregor's jokester, is mm. fabulous to the point I, I want to see if we, like I kind of want these two to like do something together before Ian McKellen, unfortunately, dies. Because those two just had so such amazing chemistry when they shared like two seconds of screen time at the end. Yeah, I was going to bring up. Um, I think you're right. Ian McGregor is just exuberance, and he's just joy personified. He brings a lot of lightness and levity to things. It is, as we sort of touched on, a very darker movie, not just in tone, but in like in, in the setting. Like it is a dark, gloomy castle, so Lumiere is there to light it up, as the candelabra would do. Whereas Ian McKellen is even more stuffier, even more put together than the original Cogsworth. The original Cogsworth is David Ogden Steers. I might like a little bit more because I think they do have a better back and forth, whereas Cogsworth has a bit more, um, what would be the word, like um, he, he lets his hair down, so to speak, in more scenes. You know, he, he gets into the BI guess at the end or he puts on his Napoleon hat and fires off. Like you see more of those moments where he's really getting into it. Whereas Ian McKellen, I think if it wasn't Ian McKellen, I wouldn't like it as much. I think if you have a different actor, it doesn't work as well. Um, how do you find Mrs. Potts? Because I feel bad to say that I don't love the Emma Thompson performance of it, as you can tell by my very high voice. I don't like saying it because it just for some reason I haven't been able to put my finger on why it doesn't work for me. Is it just because Angela Lansbury is just a beautiful motherly tone? I just don't love the accent of Emma Thompson's Mrs. Potts and the face really creeps me out in the pot. I mean, the the uncanny valleyness of all of the of all the things is the one thing that I do have to knock the film down on almost a consistent basis on. But at the same time, how else were they going to do it? Exactly. It does. It's a tra it's... translating a really cartoony, over-exaggerated animated faces to actual objects. And that's difficult to do. But going back to Emma Thompson as Mrs. Potts, 
this, let's be honest. Emma Thompson had the, you know, had the same Herculean task in front of her yes. as yes. Will Smith did in Aladdin. Yes, yes. And yeah, I caught the childhood making yeah. Yeah. role, the pivotal childhood making role. And you have to fill those boats that they claim are shoes. Was she ever going to fill them? Unfortunately, um, answer is no. Yeah. But here's the you know here's here's what makes it kind of work for me still. Okay. Okay. Hit me. Emma Thompson wasn't trying to be Angela Lansbury. Very true. It's you know what Will Smith did is attempt to be Robin Williams light. Robin Williams is nothing like, you know, Will Smith and vice versa. Whereas with Emma Thompson, Emma Thompson brought, you, you can almost tell that Emma Thompson wanted to bring her own energy to it. And this is where the studio had said, no. <laughs> so it kind of it kind of feels like studio interference a little bit. Mm. That being said, she showed up where she needed to. And there were just times when she would like either be talking to you know the bees, she would be talking to Belle, and it's just like mm. Yes. It just more forceful than the original Mrs. Potts would do. Which is uncharacteristic of Mrs. Potts. So yeah. it's like you... So I can definitely understand where you're coming from. It's It was always going to be a hard role to fill. Yes. Yeah. So do you play it like Angela Lansbury and fail miserably? Or do you attempt to bring your own energy and fail slightly? Mm. Those were the two options she had. So she was screwed either way. <laughs> so someone, someone that had a lot more leeway and who I think surpasses the original performance is Kevin Klein as Maurice. I'm so happy to see you smiling and agreeing with me. Kevin Klein is just always such a joy to watch on screen. Like for some reason, when Kevin Klein shows up in something I'm like, yes. And, I'm enjoying seeing, like, this is a role. It's not someone who originally you would go, like, Maurice and you would put Kevin Klein there. But when you see it happening, I just I just love the the quirkiness, the offbeatness of what he brings to the screen in the role as Maurice and just the, the softness and that heartbreak and tragedy that he brought to the character that we didn't see in the original um and especially in his moments interacting with the the villagers i find when they full-on gaslight him oh that broke my heart so much uh how do you find uh maurice so by the time that this film came along uh kevin klein had definitely reached that part of his career where he didn't need to sign up for jack shit mm. and so 
nowadays when you um it used to be like even as early as uh, even as late as like i would say 2004 you know he was clearly doing paycheck films but nowadays when kevin klein shows up he's showing up because he wants to be there and so you uh, i was uh, i was kind of shocked when i saw him being cast as this but i'm like no mad at it no it's mad Ke- at it <laughs> love it's, it it's, it's kevin klein Bring that Direct- part to Penzance musicality to it. Like, I love it. <laughs> yeah, bring, you know, bring that Cole Porterness to this, you know, you know, to this whole thing. But when you're first introduced to, you know, when you're first introduced to Maurice and he is singing that song. How does a moment last forever? Yes. It's like, okay, I didn't bring enough tissues for this. Because God a two minute song shouldn't make you weep that hard. But God, I'm getting missed just thinking about it, damn it. One song, I have but one song. Let's go into the songs then, because yes, this is something, so for the live action ones, we usually do get a few additional songs. Will, how did you find the newer songs, How Will the Moment Last Forever, Days in the Sun and Evermore? how did you find that add to the Beauty and the Beast canon? Um, well, a lot of these were actually, um, I know that I, I believe uh, Evermore, at least, was in the Broadway version of it, the stage version of it, I believe. And I believe Days of the Sun was, too. So these aren't necessarily new songs, but for anyone who isn't familiar with the musical, they are. Uh, whereas, um, how do, you know, How Does the Moment Last, that was obviously, that was definitely brand new from what from my understanding of it. But... That being said, um, again, I'm I'm gonna repeat myself. If you're, it, it's a miracle that you add something that actually adds something. And these definitely added something. And it it's one of those things as well that you know, Beauty and the Beast uh, ninety one is seen as such a perfect film. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, I would agree. <laughs> but when you hear these songs you realize that maybe you were missing something that, you know, you were missing something. You didn't realize you needed it until you got it. And God, like I, I'm such, I'm such a weird person when it comes to musicals because it's hard for me to watch any musical without being overcome with joy. There's just something about like, like especially if like you get someone like really really like hammering home like absolute passion it just it just makes me misty if not just flat out weep and so with these when these songs came up especially evermore jesus dan stevens sold that so hard not only that the choreography like even if you take the choreography out though it's like just a song by itself you actually get to feel the hurt feel the anger feel the confliction in his heart you get to take the you know the absolute labertine turmoil in his heart and if you don't feel anything after that then you need to go to the doctor because you might be dead so 
No, the 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 new songs are just absolutely wonderful. I like that you're making the point about um, needing the space for more emotion and more sadder sort of emotion because I think in the original Money One we only get uh, Beauty and the Beast, the title theme, Taylor's All This Time, however you want to phrase it. It really irks me a little bit when it's called Taylor's All This Time. I'm like, no, it's called Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Just going to, like, push up my glasses at that one. <laughs> but, uh, yes, from the Broadway musical, the only other ones that I'm super familiar with is um, Home and If I Can't Love Her. So obviously there's been a long time knowing that there's those like little gaps that needed to be plugged. And I think Evermore has fantastic placement in the film for that sort of song when we do see Belle go up and getting to see the Beast reaction because we don't get to see that originally. Right? Like we get to see him sad and know that he's done the right thing, you know, very that old adage, if you love something, someone set it free. All that sort of thing but to actually see that he's um made choices I, I like to see as well made those choices to let her go and then even if it hurts him I, I, some of the lyrics is like um the wasting of my lonely tower and to see him in the tower i think those, those are the words but i think that's that's glorious and and again it gives me that big fairy tale fantasy moment and and i'm just living for it um a few of the ones i think that the the one that i would stand out as my favorite musical scene in the whole film though is Gaston. Gaston is the one that I will seek out the most. I really enjoy a lot of the changes there, making a really even more ruckus tavern feel. So when they do like the table dancing, I really like that makes me feel like, yes, musical. Like I'm seeing like the stage production, that's how I feel. Musical moments of these set pieces. But again, uh, we're going to get to him soon, but I really like Luke Evans' portrayal of Gaston and uh, Josh Gad. You're just getting all that stage presence come through on the screen. Uh, which song of the originals works best for you? So it's it's a tie because okay. uh, I absolutely love Gaston as well. And it's there's multiple reasons. Like first... Uh, they added a couple lines in there that showed Gaston's character. Yeah. And it's, and it's so darkly devious. And it's like, I love it for probably also, all the wrong reasons. Also, I still love that. And I love that they made a huge moment of I use antlers and all of my decorating. The fact that they really took a beat to emphasize that. I don't know why, but it just tickles me. <laughs> There's also like there's there's also something hilarious about the song as well, especially the way that they did it here, is that you know there was all that controversy going over. It's like oh no, get, you know, you can't you can't have a gay lafou. It's like people when you are singing about how big and brawny and how awesome your friend is. Spain there the whole time. That's kind of gay, isn't it? Yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of. So, but even if they, even even when they took out the cartoony elements, they amped up everything else. They amped up the dancing. They amped up the energy. And really, when Josh Gad is in anything, it's not going to be low energy. <laughs> you know. For sure. Especially when he's the one singing, it's like, mm, yeah, no, he doesn't. He doesn't do anything half-assed. That boy. But, but the one sequence that I always have to come back to, but I have to go back to be our guest, 
Yeah. The way they choreographed this. Yeah, it's CGI and CGI as hell. But it's so clever the way they did it. And I'm sorry, Ewan McGregor pouring his heart into his performance there. Just oozing charm. Mm, sorry, no. A hat, like, I have to go back to that one every single time. Every single time I, every single time I hear just that initial B, our guess, and just like the way he, the way he's just subtly staccato movement and then just, you know, just slowly dancing and then just watching the crescendo just go and go and go. It's just such a wild performance. You have to I love it. I, I don't have to love it. Uh, I, find it <laughs> I find it very similar to the feelings I had, sorry, that I had for uh, Little Mermaid Under the Sea because these are our big boisterous party numbers of the film. These are sometimes the biggest selling point of the film. And I find it very similar in that I find, unfortunately, when it's translating from the animation to live action, I find it a little hollow and I find the colours not as vibrant. And I feel like it takes a very long time to warm up. But then by the end, then by the end, I'm in it. It's like the first three minutes, maybe I'm not there. I'm like, I'm like just like on the bench. I'm like, mm, yeah. But by the end, when they really get into um, have the big crescendo of it all, I'm, then I'm feeling it. Then I'm feeling to be our guest. But I did feel like it just didn't translate as, as so, well because it's hard. It's hard to do. So I have a question for you, though. Yes, answer. So you you complained about the darkness of you know of the scene. It wasn't as vibrant. Yes. They're in a dark dark, dark castle. Dark, yes, I know. But then it is on the production to make it light because this is meant to be be our guest. Welcome to our big, warm, happy home where we're going to make you a nice life now, and we're going to look after you. And that's the part I didn't feel was. But the, way, the, the to me the way that they sold you know the way that they did it though, and it's again if you're not paying attention, you're missing it. To me, you saw this, you know, like to me, uh, in like the 91 version, it's like they started out as a seven, so they didn't really have anywhere to go. Mm. But remember, Belle is still feeling very awkward in this moment. And so th the way that they started off is kind of awkward, is kind of slow and awkward and dark. And so when they build it up, you can actually feel her energy you can actually feel the scene matching her energy. It's now lighting up and lighting up and lighting up because she's lighting up and lighting up and lighting up. So isn't that another way to look at it? I like that take. I might have to look at the cliff and have a look. Maybe I just like the energy already being at, at the 10. So like maybe I just like, bam, here we go. <laughs> Magical objects, I'm in. Roaring fire, I'm in. Champagne going everywhere. Let's go. Great stuff. It looks delicious. Like maybe that's the part I miss as well. Just like all those great dishes going past. They just looked more appetizing animated. Maybe that's the thing. That's um, fair. Well, I noticed a little bit. We talk, we're not going to get into some of the seating because we said this a bit hard, but not only that, I found like a few of the phrases being really clipped and that's where I might have had a few issues with um, Emma Watson and a little bit with Dan Stevens as well. I found that they would not hold the notes fully. I found like notes were dropping or notes or phrases were being clipped at the end. So after a little while, wasn't happy with that. But when you have 
stage legend Audrey McDonald in your film. I thought it was the correct choice to end the film of her singing uh, Beauty and the Beast and holding that glorious operatic note. Um, are there any other musical moments in the film that stood out to you? So I have to say, uh, I've actually seen Audrey McDonald live. <gasps> uh, she... Uh, she came uh she came to utah and played with our symphony and so it's just like god that woman can sing good god but when you're not talking about the absolute demigod that is you know audra mcdonald again i have to hearken back to josh gad yeah because of the of the main uh, of the main cast, there really were only a handful of like classically trained singers, and Josh Gad, like him, get, him getting to hit those upper register notes, which the original La Food never got to do. There are so many of those that just that just punch up the movie so well. It's just. Oh, it's just so great. This is your badness level. We've saved the best till last. Let's talk about Luke Evans' Gaston and Josh Gad's LeFou. How do you find the portrayal of these characters? Because these are two, two of the most different characters choice-wise, but I think, as you sort of said, with um, the amping up of the Gaston song, I feel like these characters, I really like the direction that these characters went in. How did you first react and still react to these characters? Oh, yeah. my uh, The way I react now is still the way I react. You know, is the way I reacted then. Uh, let's talk about LeFou first, because I, I think we need to give uh, Gaston his proper due here. But let's talk about LeFou first. Um, the way that they wrote LeFou here is a lot more nuanced than mm. he was mm -hmm. in the original. Like, he was definitely, like, the the jokester, you know... The comic relief kinda, style character. Yeah, very, the very much, That's Very, very feel. much so. And But they didn't write him like that. They wrote him, like, where he essentially starts off as that, like, the, you know, the 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 ugly best friend the designated ugly friend but then you you know but then he starts realizing he he, he starts you know he sees that the veil is slowly being lifted upon his friend and you realize that what he's willing you know what gaston's willing to do bothers him yes. and so like like when when josh gad is being joyful and jokey and being the comic relief you know basically being like the live action olaf this, <laughs> it's great but what we never get to see um on or we hardly ever get to see josh gad do is bring it down and bring it low and when you see that especially in a movie like this it's heart-wrenching and so he again another character another actor does not get any you know does not get his Great. respect at all mm -hmm. 
Josh Gad's one of those types of performance where he's his own type, uh, a Josh Gad type, a Jack Black type, those people that just really are able to bring themselves to the role and help sell it. Uh, so I love like the delivery of a lady's never going to happen, like when he gets really sassy. But I think you're correct in the sense that we actually get growth and development and we see where he does start to differ because the LeFou in the 91 uh, delights in Maurice being sent off to the uh, to the asylum, whereas this one here really starts to point out what was wrong with Gaston and am I following the right people? And even has that moment, I think, during the middle of the mob song, like, yeah, I'm starting to question whether I've made like the right life decisions and I'm following the right person. So there's, there's that little uh, self-discovery moment he has with the castle inhabitants, yes? I have never felt like, I have never felt like laughter and heartbreak at the same time, but that's how talented Josh Gad is with that, again, a throwaway line that's supposed to be comic relief, mm. but you feel it in your heart so much that it's like, you don't know whether you want to hug him or laugh at him. And that's jo that's that is absolutely the power of Josh Gad. Hmm. Luke Evans is someone like, again, I wouldn't have pictured as Gaston, not not just like um that there was wrong with the custom, but it's just like, oh, okay, Luke Evans, great, you know, have loved what he was doing, especially in the uh 2010s era. So when I when you see the cast, you're like, cool, didn't really see it, but we'll see if it works. I love this performance so very much. I really, really enjoyed this guest on performance. I think he's able to translate the character from the film and give it even more uh, weight and gravitas. I like the fact that they make him a war hero. I like the fact that he, they give Gaston more motivations for what he's doing because it is very cartoony in the 91, like bad guy, bad guy, just for the sake of being bad guy, hunky, hunky town jock almost is what is what it's sold as. But the fact that, you know, he he loved being in the war, he likes being adored, he likes he likes the regiment, he is the, yeah, he's the town quarterback pretty much is how it sort of feels. And so who is to deny him? And he likes the hunt. But when I'm sitting in theatres, Will, and I still get the same thing now, having watched it four times, when I'm sitting in theatres and he ties Maurice to a tree and leaves him for the wolves, I'm like, oh, wow, this is where we're going with this character now. This is a character that is much more malicious. In the original, we find I find he's just, um, you know, the beast is, is an other, the beast is prey, the beast is to be hunted, and, oh, look at me, I'm going to be big and strong and take it down and impress everyone and say and win Bell. Bell will have to be mine. But to take actual steps towards, you know, full-on murder, <laughs> um, I'm like, wow, this, this is just its own thing. And then it works in the context of the story because then we get that comeuppance again in the uh in the tavern where maurice has been able to escape with the help of the enchantress and uh has rallied the townspeople to make gaston a villain the charisma and the full-out manipulation that gaston is able to exhibit there I, don't, I think is what makes him again very different from the 91 i don't think the 91 version is that smart enough to make the townspeople then uh, gang up back onto Maurice. No, you're being crazy, and oh, it's and it makes the sending him off to the asylum even worse to me because we we all know Maurice has been saying the whole time, but to completely um, change the context of Maurice's 
memory and situation uh yeah it just it makes me a little bit ill actually and i think that that it makes that character work as a villain so much better how do you find luke evans as gaston so when i talk about this movie uh to people you know who don't immediately tell me just to shut the hell up uh I, they tell me how much that they don't like luke evans that they say that luke evans is the weak point of the film really? and they, and they yeah they are absolutely wrong let's just let's just call that right now they are absolutely wrong um this is one of the, this is another one of the shock ones that i i didn't see coming i it kind of bordered on stunt casting for me at uh, at the time because he was just coming off of uh the uh, the Hobbit you know the two Hobbit films yeah. he was in and yeah. then he also did Dracula Untold Dracula. Which, yeah which, uh, which is just a a great mm. film uh, like I I actually really enjoy the film a lot mm. but uh so like you know so he was kind of like the the hot ticket item at that time absolutely so, I would agree so, with that so they cast you know they cast him and that's like I didn't know if he could sing I I didn't know anything about it I was like well. I'm sure he can sell the hell out of it and sold the hell out of it. He did. Oh my God. Uh, it's in, um, I'm glad that you brought up the war hero thing because you could tell that not only did he want the glory, hmm. but he had, you could tell that the reason uh, you could tell that he clearly had demons coming from that. Because uh, they, uh, you know, all these, you know, there's all these, you know, dramatic movies that say, you know, once you take a man's life, you know, it changes you. Well, you can definitely tell, like, once, once he talks about how not only did he kill these people, but he very callously did it. He shot them all in the back. He essentially cheated at the war. Mm-hmm. You could. And how he's pretending to just be gleeful about it, but then, but then you get those moments when you get to see him by himself, those more quiet moments. You get to see the demons lurking behind his eyes. You get to see what previously taking you know taking another man's life has done to him, and it's so interesting to see. It's it is such a night and day performance from what we got from the ninety one version. The 91 version is very much telling you, you know, mm. oh, I'm this big burly guy that everyone loves. And they're they're still showing that to you. He's still, you know, obviously the song Gaston is all about celebrating Gaston. But then you start listening to the added lyrics, especially, and you get to see his actions. It's like are we really celebrating the right person? And I love that dichotomy. I love that that absolute conflict. Not only in himself, because he he at times he knows. He knows what he's doing is wrong and he just doesn't care. And it's so it's so dastardly. It's so <laughs> the uh the question you pose in like in the in the prep thing is is he evil? I don't know how evil he actually is because mm-hmm. of how screwed up he got from the war. 
you know, he, he definitely has some trauma there that he needs to work through. And maybe that's the reason, maybe that's also the reason why he wants to want, you know, wants to be with Belle because not only is there, not only is it the thrill of the chase, but you, uh, from the first scene we see of them where he's trying to engage it almost feels like he wants to be with you know be with someone who won't celebrate him wants mm. what he can't have absolutely it's it goes beyond that though it's like i okay. think I, I think at the back of his head like in that again this is maybe maybe I'm just talking on my ass on this one. I don't know, but this is what I got out of it. It's yeah. in that scene where he's trying to engage with Belle, trying to talk to her about the books and things like that. It almost seems like he wants to be with someone who would treat him as an equal and not put him on a pedestal. Because I think deep down inside, he knows he has done some some dastardly things. So is he full on evil? No, because I think there is some self-awareness. And I think that's, I think that's why he does some of the things he does. And I think it really shows at the end as well, when he knows he's defeated, he knows that there's no way he's ever going to get bell. He's, there's no way he's really getting out of this situation alive. And so he's just, you know, so he just takes that in for a penny, out for a pound act and tries to, you know, and tries to kill the beast hand to hand. And obviously it doesn't work out for him. That death scene is still one of the ones that um, makes me clutch my pearls a little bit when I'm watching it. It was rough in the animated 91 and it's still rough now. That falling to death is, ooh. Practically perfect in every way. Uh, Will, we're about wrapping up our episode. Is there anything we haven't touched on yet that you would like to? Because one thing for me that's just so absolutely iconic imagery is the ballroom scene. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say, talk about the beautiful big yellow dress. I love the design of this dress still. Uh, Belle in this yellow. I love the awesome rose ear cuff. I think the costuming on this one is is glorious. But the ballroom scene, I like that it's not the exact same um, animation. Like it's not just pulling it exactly. They do different moves. Um, I still, you know, it, it's that fantasy feeling of seeing this big sweeping ball gown as she's being spun around. But there's this really one little cute scene I love where he picks her up by the hip and they spin around. I like that scene as opposed to in the original where she places her head on his chest and the beast looks over at the others. I like that they, you know, changed up a little bit. Are there, is there anything else on the film that we haven't touched on that you would like to? Uh, that Obviously you have to, you know, we would be really dumb if we just glossed right over that ballroom scene <laughs> and the iconic imagery. But yeah, you are right that they, they did, you know, they, the, the changes really did add, again, add, you know, some depth. It, it just you know, put its thing. own stamp on the film. It just, that's that's the what I come back to with it. Exactly. So then I feel that we would also be remiss in not talking about the epic climax of everyone turning. Yeah. They do something so evil with like that moment just right before the pedal you know you see the pedal drop but then 
everyone just reverts into static. Yeah. You know, the static accessories, the dishes and everything. And they keep it there for that one second too many. (laughs) It's like, I know what you're doing. I hate what you're doing. But give me more. So it's like it just it just punches up the the reveal that everyone's transforming and we get to see everyone as to who they are. And it's this oddly enough, this is one of the scenes that aren't aren't my favorites, but I have to give it its due. Yes. Because because a, I love all the actors in it, and seeing them all costumed up and makeup up, and <laughs> yeah, 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 and Stanley Tucci missing teeth. Oh, that's yeah. such a nice, cute. That's a cute nod. Yes. Just there, there's just little things like that that just made me happy. But again, it's iconic, and we and we actually got to see. The one thing that they added that I really appreciate as well is the villagers remembering that this yeah. castle even existed. Yes, again, plugging those gaps. Yes. Yeah, and so like them coming, like having all the villagers come in and collect their, you know, their collective spouses and missing loved ones. It's a it's a hallmark moment, but hallmark moments sometimes work, and this works. Absolutely, and uh, what a great bookend to uh, one of the favourite scenes that we talked about at the beginning with the big um, ballroom scene at the start. So, what a really nice way to uh, end it off. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, we'll see you all next time. And when you come to the end, <laughs> stop. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Doing Disney. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Doing Disney Podcast and Twitter at Doing Disney Pod. 